Welcome to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast with your host, award-winning realtor, Matt Glenn, and top producing mortgage broker, Taylor Atkinson. Professionals in the industry, enthusiastic entrepreneurs, and successful investors. When it comes to real estate, we're all in. Matt, what is your biggest expense in life? What do you spend the most money on? Probably my house. (laughs) Oh, your wife. That's a good one. Yeah. You're wrong. You give it to the government. Well, it came out of Rich Dad, Poor Dad's book. It's a leading question. It's like, hey, what's your biggest expense? And most people put their house, a couple other things. And like, sometimes I do ask clients this, mostly self-employed clients that are paying a ton in tax. Like, what are you doing? So the point of this question is leading into our guest today. Yeah, that was a 10 out of 10 with the lead up. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So Nicole Watson, she's been my accountant for ages, was at KPMG for like 20 years, went out, started her own firm with her husband. And yeah, they run an awesome team. Super interesting way they do it. Instead of just once a year, you go to your accountant with everything and pay the bill. It's like a subscription base where you work with her continuously, you know. If anything pops up, if you're doing a transaction, like anytime I'm going to buy a property or sell a property or make any decision, which is going to affect my overall taxes, I just shoot her a quick email. Well, let's be honest, none of my emails are quick, but I'll shoot her an email and she gets back to me incredibly quick, adds a ton of value. And like that is worth her weight in gold. So yeah, yeah. obviously that's what she's talking about. Yeah. yeah, so we dive into a few things here. Matt falls asleep within the first couple minutes. Like 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is like a ton of changes going on that people need to know about. Some huge penalties that could incur. People are on the ball. And if they need some information, don't contact Matt and I. This is not legal accounting investment advice. Although Nicole's an accountant, we won't hold her to anything on this show. Just reach out to her, book a meeting, do yourself a favor, save some money on that massive expense you have called tax and also pre-plan right yeah yeah there's so many little movements that you can make and i mean she does a lot of state planning type stuff too so yeah if you're looking at kind of building any type of planning for your family do it now enjoy the show okay welcome to the show nicole thanks for coming first time at studio yeah in the mat cave mat cave so tell us about your kind of perfect friday how do you lead into the weekend what do you do for work? What do I do for work? I'm yeah. an accountant. So my uh, Friday this time of year is my head's in the sand. Yeah, no, as summer as an accountant, I mean, it's busy with what I do is a lot of tax restructuring work that happens year round. But Friday in the summer, we close the office, at least to clients anyway. Yeah. So I get some work done and spend a little bit more time with staff. This time of year, it's really just focus leading into the weekend of Get out the door what you promised the clients yeah. that you were going yeah. to complete that week. Yeah. But yeah, just keep it a little bit more easy going, hopefully on a Friday, try and bring the lunches in and then not work in the evening on a Friday. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so when's your busy season? Like, is it start basically right at the end of January until April or like The typical accountant, yeah. End of January, call it right till June. Yeah. End of June. Yeah. I was curious with you because I'm just assuming, but you work with most like small business entrepreneur people like is it throughout the year then obviously or are you still heavy in the spring because of those people filing personally as well it's typically a little heavier in the spring because starting with february how you pay yourself as a business owner results in a tax slip so you're your own employer so your company is issuing you a t4 slip or a t5 slip which is dividends just like investing in Bank of Montreal, you were going to receive a T5 slip from them in the mail in yeah. sometime in February. 
So part of that busyness is catching up all the accounting that happened in the year and maybe they're partway done, but we need to get enough information just to be able to help with issuing those tax slips. Then we're in March and a large part of my firm is trusts and estates. So sometimes there's trusts in the overall business, small business structure. Sometimes it's a trust tied to various state specific work. And so those have the second filing deadline at the March. And then we're into third filing deadline, the personal taxes in April. Yeah. And so we were talking before off air, there's a few new deadlines that we need to be aware of. Yeah. yeah. So it's tied to trust, but what many people don't realize is that they have a trust, despite the fact there's no written agreement and they would have never thought that they had a trust. And so it's filing deadline is end of March, but it captures any situation in where somebody might not be the owner of a particular asset. So, you know, the biggest example I walked through with a coworker and it started with the underused housing tax return, whether she should file or not, was her grandma added her aunt on title to the apartment. And she's like, well, what do you mean? There's no trust. I said, well, if your grandma sells the apartment tomorrow, does your aunt get all the money or half the money? And yeah. she said, no, because like my grandma would get it. And then if she passed away, they would split between the three siblings. Yeah. I said, well, so your aunt is not really an owner. And we call that a separation of the title. So aunt is on title, but the true owner is called a beneficial owner. And that's grandma. So no written agreement. It's all friendly within the family. And yes, maybe you should get a written agreement legally, yeah. but yeah. that doesn't happen in many cases, despite recommendations, but it creates this arrangement where the aunt is just holding title and isn't a true owner. So there is a return now to file for those situations. Sorry, is this brand new then for this year? Is brand like new for, for this year. For filing it? Yeah, filing. okay. Yes. So a lot of people to get approved for mortgages right now need a coastliner. Yeah. Yeah, like we do multiple people on title. So those people need to be filing this and stating that, let's say the parents are the co-signers. So is there something specific in there that they state that like they won't receive any benefit from the gains of this property? Or is that just, they literally just want to know that they're involved in the property, but it's not their primary residence? Yeah. The government just says, this is an arrangement. Now you have to file a return. And if you don't file, the penalties are the greater of, so it's not the lesser of, it's definitely the greater of 2,500 or 5% of the value of the assets involved with this trust. So I think you had your podcast a couple of weeks ago, average price in Kelowna of a family, a million dollars, and there's yeah. $50,000 one year penalty for not just not filing. They'll do this every year, essentially, I guess, if you don't file. Crazy. Can they backdate that penalty? Like if they don't find out for, say, five years, like they just audit the... BC land title? I guess so, yeah. It's probably easy now. Everything's digital. So they did say if you have one of these arrangements and you didn't know about it, so don't just you're pretend. You're not like negligent. Yeah. Like so yeah. these guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're listening, maybe turn it <laughs> off now. Yeah. If you didn't know them for 2023, if you eventually file or file late, there won't be a penalty. But this typically the way penalties work within the Canada Revenue Agency is if you file a return, then the statute of limitation clock starts. But if you never file a return, you're always subject to having to file and then if you're late there's penalties for not filing oh. so i think this is, is a major issue is it fairly easy for people to file online by themselves 
So there was a joke on LinkedIn by this one tax advisor out east, and he said, we think as accountants, we should provide a how-to so that every client can do this by paper. Because <laughs> it starts with, you have to apply for a trust number. So as the accountant, I can do that online. But if you're just somebody who's not familiar with these things, there's a form called a T3APP. Yeah. You file it and you'd probably be lost in figuring out how to file it because you have documents about the trust and then you're back to like, but I don't really understand what a trust is. Yeah. So what do I fill out? You get your trust number, you file a trust return, but it has nothing on it because these are actually all nil returns. The government's acknowledged that. But then the very special form within this new return and these reporting is the Schedule 15. So that's a key schedule where you get to report the SIN number, date of birth, and address of anybody involved in the trust. So in the situation where grandma adds aunt on title, that's pretty simple. You're just going to need the date of birth, SIN, and address of grandma and aunt. But in some cases, we've got these family trusts that exist and the beneficiaries are mom, dad, kids, grandkids, future grandkids, corporation owned by anybody involved in the trust. Well, yeah. So that was my next <laughs> question. So say a corporation, like a developer who has say like 10 shareholders, they all have to file stating that they have an interest in that? Or is the corporation just then responsible to file? It would just be the corporation. So often going to developers, what we'll often see is that a developer sees an opportunity and they buy a piece of land in land co number one. Incorporated, that's going to be their future development. Time's not right down the road. They decide they don't want to develop that one alone. They go into partnership with Taylor, and Taylor and Lanco form a partnership. As long as Lanco is a partner of the partnership, they shouldn't have to file this trust return because Lanco is a partner. But let's just say Taylor and Development Co. form the partnership and they sign an agreement with Lanco. Lanco, you can keep title because we don't want to pay the property transfer tax today. We're going to develop the property, have all the profits here in this partnership, but we'll fix the title when we actually sell things. So in that case, Lanco and the partnership are subject to these new filings. Hmm. I know that's complicated. Normally I might draw this on boards for clients, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that well, was, that was for... when we were getting around having a hard time because I was at a BC tax conference and this is in September and the presenter was almost indicating that the general partner that holds title, because in BC, the partnership cannot hold title. It's not allowed to. It has to be some entity. So generally, one of the partners holds title, but the speaker was almost indicating all of these partnerships might also have to file these trust returns. But I think we've got to a point where if title is held by at least one of the partnerships, we're okay. But if title is somewhere else in the overall structure, then there's a trust return to be filed. So I guess for Matt and I, for our clients... Do we just say, hey, you should be aware about that? Like if Matt's doing a transaction, there's multiple people involved and same with myself. Do we just say, hey, speak to your accountant or where do we point them to? I would definitely speak to their accountant because it could be that once the accountant asks the different questions, maybe the parent is co-signer and they actually feel like they are going to profit from some of the proceeds on a sale or be part of that ownership, then we might look and be like, well, there's not really this weird type of arrangements going on. So there's no tax implication, basically. Just They're a penalty. Just, just a, a penalty, penalty that it's data collection. Data collection, yes. Okay. Yeah. So crazy. <laughs> well, been... we'll, we'll get this released pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. If we release this. March 30th. Yeah. yeah. And like if they're working, if your clients are working with an account, it is easy to get a trust number 
online. It's just that it is quite a weird thing because a lot of times there's no trust agreement. So when I apply for a trust number, my biggest thing at the beginning, what's the name of this? It has to have a name. So CRA came out and gave guidance on the name would be like, in the grandma's case, grandma, full name, trust. And then usually you have to submit the trust agreement. So they had a Q&A. Well, if you have no agreement, because this is the case, is tell us the arrangement. So write it down and submit that. How does CRA have enough employees to come out with all these codes and then audit them? I feel like every year they're coming out with more forms I, to fill out. I think it was Kim Mooney's or some other thing on me on LinkedIn talked about it's almost double the employees that have been hired by CRA since 2019. Wow. Yes. Really? Yeah, they have lots of time to phone us about UHT <laughs> returns and addresses at Big White because they don't match the post office that they have. So I did see somebody <laughs> post something about that the other day in the Big White group, actually. It's like yeah. an Australian struggling to file because, yeah, the addresses weren't like We file and they're like, well, we can't process this because we don't understand the address. At the end of the day, it's all exempt from tax. Yeah. So it's just, again, more paper. Okay. Any other like codes that are coming out or have come out very recently that people should be aware of? Like this seems like the most relevant, obviously. Yeah. I mean, on a good news, anyone who did file these underused housing tax returns for 2022, a lot of the people that had to file were exempt from tax. So Canadian corporation that owned residential real estate, a trust, just like what we're talking about here, even if it wasn't a real documented trust, had to file partnerships. So brother and sister in partnerships to buy various rental properties, they had to follow these returns. But 2023 going forward, as long as everyone's Canadian, there should no longer be a filing requirement. So that's a... The underuse housing tax, really? The underuse housing tax, yeah. Yeah, because we scrambled, I think, late last year to get that. In. Yeah, and, uh, well... I don't really understand it then. I still no, I mean, I had one company that had one parcel of land, but then you had to file return for each building that was on the land and they, <laughs> so there was a few far like farm <laughs> houses on the land that were residential for the farm workers yeah. so yeah <laughs> maybe this is a bad question to ask but do you feel the tax code is going the right direction like is it evolving <laughs> absolutely not every week i read the kim moody um, oh yeah he's good documents that he publishes and i'd say the last half a year is sort of him going on a rant about the tax system well he had so, one recently that was like taxes are too overcomplicated. i think it was like new zealand and australia or something had a way to file if you were just a t4 employee maybe had some t2s or something but like you shouldn't have to go to a company to file if you're just an employee yeah. making straight income. Yeah. But it's like so overcomplicated now that. Yeah. I mean, if I wasn't tax advisor, I don't know if I'd want to file my own tax return. <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. don't know if I exactly. would. Exactly. And there's always all these changes, but yeah, you had even like, well, in BC, the short-term rentals, well, in the November economic forum, our federal government decided to jump onto the BC yeah. thing and said, well, yeah, short-term rentals, if you're in one of those jurisdictions and you decide to still rent short-term, we're not going to allow you to deduct the related expenses. Yes. Which is crazy because, again, you could have an illegal business and if you decide to properly report, which you should, and you're supposed to report worldwide income, there's nothing in the Income Tax Act that says you can't deduct your expenses in that case. So anyway, yeah, yeah. It's another one to watch out as an accountant. It's like, oh, if someone brings me something, do I have to ask if that was from short-term rentals or not? And then if it's short-term rentals, it's so confusing about 
who's allowed. It so let's like- hypothetically, let's say we get some exemptions in Kelowna and people can now operate their short-term rental properties. You're not allowed any write-offs. Has that been solidified? I think if they're allowed, I don't think there's actually proposed legislation. It'll probably come out in the budget, but it was stated that if you're in a jurisdiction where you're not allowed to operate a short-term rental, then you can't deduct the expenses. So one would think that if in Kelowna, there's people that have the special license that... But if someone was doing it illegally anyways, why would they then go and... Well, yeah. What is this going to lead to? Is you're going to lead people to decide not to report income hmm. yeah. that would otherwise have reported it with the expenses, but they might get fed up with all of this. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, maybe to switch gears a little bit to bring the mood up. What about like T4, Prop, Incorporated? If someone's a small business owner, can you simplify what they should do? Like, should they be incorporated? Should they say Prop? I guess the most oversimplified definition I've heard is if you're going to spend all the money you make, then don't bother being incorporated. What's your kind of advice? That's usually my starting point. So everyone always asks me, how much should I be making before I incorporate? And I always say it's not the number because if you're making 500,000, but you have so much debt that you would spend every penny you earn on the 500,000, then don't incorporate. But if you make 100,000 and maybe you're just living on your spouse's income and you don't really need that 100,000 or 50,000, then if you incorporate, instead of paying your 30% tax every year, you can incorporate to defer tax because your corporation can be at maybe at the 11% tax rate. Mm. So it's an opportunity to defer tax just as a basic start and advantage. And so that was one I just met with a client a couple of weeks ago about her position was she was recently married. Now they've got the two incomes and she's in a position where if she was incorporated, paying that lower upfront tax, she could probably be putting 20000 aside every year. But it's always based on those discussions. What are you spending? What are your future plans? If you're not spending a lot now, but all you want is your dream house on the lake, eventually you're going to need a lot of funds personally. Another situation, just running some numbers for somebody who was a realtor who was looking at incorporating or not, we used a $100,000 number and it was strictly not the tax deferral. It was where are CPP rates at right now? Yeah. Because they're increasing and if you incorporate or your sole proprietor, guess what? You're your own employer. And so as the employee, you put in CPP. As the employer, you get to match that. The government doesn't give you back what you match when you're 65 and apply for CPP. They don't track who's matching it. So you're not getting that portion back. You pay double, yeah. And in the past, you know, tax rates, the way they work, that wasn't punitive really at all. But I ran some numbers in 2023 on 100,000. So you're 100,000, sole proprietor, you pay your CPP, you pay your income tax. Incorporate, make the 100,000 take all the cash out, but not as a wage. You take it out as a dividend. So you're not paying CPP. And it was just under $5,500 cash flow savings. So just leads to discussions of, okay, well, where are you at in your age? Have you already contributed 20 years into CPP? So by losing 5,500 a year, are you really going to lose that much out on CPP when you retire? Yeah. Is the calculation for that, I guess it probably will change by the time we're at that age. I think in Australia, they actually bumped it up by like five years for their retirement age. But is it like how many years you've paid into it? Because don't they cap it annually? Like you only receive X amount of dollars back from this. Yeah. So 
I don't have the formula. It's one of those things that are really hard to find. Yeah. I do have a contact that calculates it, but usually what starts with you have to get access to your My Services account, which is separate than the government. Look at the years you've contributed. And I guess you probably male now. I don't know the rules, but I know with females, they will almost exclude not count years where you're on maternity leave. So that oh, would okay. be in favor of you because otherwise they're looking all these years and right. you didn't contribute that year or that year. Yeah. They'll exclude those years. And then I think there's a bit of a formula where they knock off a few lower years and maybe knock off a few higher income earning years. So, so the no-brainers are the people are like, I hate CPP. I don't believe in CPP. I don't believe investments. I'm such a real estate guy <laughs> yeah. or girl and I am not taking a wage and I'm not paying into this. Those are the easy. It's like, okay, just take dividends, you know, your savings and yeah. we've had talk and you know, you won't get RSP room and you know, you, you know. Oh, so I'm an easy client. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, I guess. I had another client too. It was a couple of years ago and we had the discussions because he was quite young and he's just very much into real estate. And we talked a lot about the RSP and everything and COVID happened and he was not eligible for the wage subsidy and he was fine. He was like, I made that choice. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. have foreseen this. It sucks, but... So if this is a very hypothetical, if you were a younger investment entrepreneur just starting out wanting to buy real estate and you had like you were self-employed, would you be incorporated, pay yourself dividends? And then what would you do growing from there? Like, how would you? Yeah, if I was younger, probably start off with suggesting some wage just because over time, I've seen people when they go to retire or they have the sale of their business and they have a huge income year, man, it would have been nice to reduce the income for that one year event by the one-time RSP contribution. Hmm. Not knowing the foreseeable future, having you know just a way to put something aside that you're not going to touch with the RSPs or now we've got the first time home savings plan. But I would start off there. It's a good way to manage cash flow. Yeah, it's just no right or wrong. I do have a young client that doesn't contribute to CPP. Everything's dividends. But like I'd say once someone turns 50, I'm finding more and more of those clients that are realizing the cost of CPP and employer health tax. If they have other employees, maybe EI, but they're definitely moving to dividends more often. Interesting. I mean, I guess the risk is like somebody buys into this knowledge and says, yeah, I agree. I don't want to pay CPP. I want to keep it in my own pocket, but they don't invest it in anything else. Yeah. and don't have a portfolio and then they have nothing to retire on. So it's like you have to be fairly responsible with that savings of your CCP. Yeah. And I had one client that she said, when I contribute to RSP, that's my own way of knowing that I put something aside for when I retire. And this is my own only way I know how to set aside money. And then I've got another client, they did a little bits of RSP every year, but they always had wages and a way that they might retire overseas. And we can convert their RSP room into this plan where they can pay into like an individual pension plan. Yeah. Which will actually really, that plan would not be there for you if you never had RSP room. If that's your self-employment, you have to pay yourself like a fairly substantial wage, don't you, to create that? Yeah. Do you think it's worth that? I mean, obviously I've it's seen it now. I didn't work with a lot of them in my first 10 years of my career. The last five, I've definitely seen a lot more in place. And I think it's just the type of the clients that were their ages now. They were, especially where they've sold the business, they now have the cash flow. Mm-hmm. Maybe they took wages, enough wages throughout their career. And it's just, you know, Stefano's brought it up a couple of times. I'm like, man, I don't want to pay myself that much <laughs> money. That's why it's just such a like wage versus dividend is so individual specific. 
And also making sure all the advisors. So a lot of like as a mortgage broker, I mean, you have heard of stories where people go to get a mortgage and the broker's looking for just wage income to start with. Yeah. And if you don't fit that hole, it can be very difficult unless you've got the right. It, yeah, that's funny to me because there's so many people right now that are like fixated on a slightly lower rate. So they want to pay themselves like the best T4 so they can qualify for the most with like an A lender. But if you just use like their business income and maybe add a quarter point to the rate at a client, we saved $70,000 in taxes that year because he didn't have to pay himself anything. And the quarter point extra on the interest rate was like 2000 bucks annually. So, yeah. I guess it makes sense to talk to everybody before you... Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just the other things, the small things is just, do you have children? Like Mm. childcare expenses. I had a client last year that came and I'm like, yeah, sorry, you can't deduct your childcare expenses because your former accountant had you on dividends. And guess what? You ended up being the lower income of the two spouses because you're just starting up. So... Why does the government allow people to pay themselves dividends? Like you would think they would want everyone to be a salary. Yeah, well, don't yeah. this podcast too. <laughs> don't worry, no one. Is there restrictions on who can listen? I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, BC, if you pay yourself a dividend, it does count towards WCB, but right. it does not count towards the employer health tax. So if you're an owner of a few employees and guess what, your salary level is creeping up to the 500,000, maybe as that owner, maybe that's the final straw where you're like, well, I don't want to go over the 500,000. I'm now on dividends as the owner. I mean, I think I can also answer my own question. Like tax code was created for essentially wealthy people that still gain wealth, right? Like it's built like a socialism type country, but there's always going to be opportunities that maybe not all of us can access, but I'm sure the people at the top are making sure that they can still pay themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was probably introduced, you know, along those lines and things were a lot simpler. And as tax changes arise, they just keep adding layers on. I always get frustrated when I hear the government's propose, we're just going to go after the top 1% or 2% and everyone thinks they don't pay tax. And it's like, well, on most of their income, they pay 53.5%. They buy way more stuff than you and I. So all the PST and GST they contribute and they pay their carbon tax probably way more than us. If they're retired, they're still paying the school taxes and (laughs) they're still paying a lot of tax. And I think the percentage of the overall tax revenue that the top 1% represent is a huge amount of our government revenue. So, yeah. And those that are not paying tax because they say that they have found a way, they are doing something illegal. So, <laughs> <laughs> I probably at least once a year have the call. So, can I put my money down somewhere overseas or whatever? I'm like, well, are you going to keep controlling your money and investing? Yes. Well, there's look through rules. You report everything in Canada. So, yeah. unless yeah. you're giving everything away, but those that are not paying tax have found either an investment vehicle where they're not earning income from it, and maybe that income is going to arise way down the road, or if they're earning income, they're just not reporting it. In terms of buying property, do you have recommendations like buying your first couple properties? Should you buy it as a personal primary residence? When should you maybe buy properties under a hold co or like have a specific trust agreement to migrate the property over to like a quasi company? Like there's passive income tax yeah. that maybe people aren't fully aware of. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So when you earn rental income, so rental income is considered passive because you don't need to be really involved on a day-to-day basis. 
And so that net profit from rental income, if it's earned inside a corporation, it's subject to upfront 50% tax rate. Upfront meaning part of it is almost like a prepayment of tax, that as soon as you take the cash out of your company, the rental company, you get a refund of it from the government and it's replaced by that personal tax. And is there a specific way you need to take it out of your company? Then? As a dividend. Yeah. Okay. So whereas personally, you don't have to deal with the complexities of a corporation, this upfront 50%, what you are subject to is the roller coaster of your income. So maybe one year, your rental income is really high. There's not a lot of expenses. You've been repaying your debt and now your income is much higher, subject to higher income tax rates. And then maybe the next year there's large repairs. And so you're kind of on a bit of a roller coaster ride with your overall tax rate. Yeah, interesting. So in those cases, maybe there's a few rental properties. There might be other reasons to put the rental properties in a corporation, maybe estate planning. Those are harder discussions. It's not so easy of whether we put the rental properties in. And if you have uh, five employees, it would be considered active income then? Yeah. So if they have a, especially apartments where typically you'd hire a property management company, but if you had your own employees, as long as you have more than five full-time and so more than five, it's five full-time plus part-time. So like 40 hours a week at minimum wage or they don't really say what full-time is. I know when they brought in these new tax on split income rules, I think they considered full-time was 25 or 30, something like that for that specific rule. Matt, do you want a job? I'm looking to hire. (laughs) But yeah, if you have already an operating company, so let's just say my accounting firm, it's an operating company. It requires me there on a day-to-day basis. You know, you're earning income in that company and you're earning and paying maybe tax at the 11%. And then you see an investment or a lot of, I had many clients where they wanted to start saving for the commercial real estate. They didn't want to pay rent anymore. So they're deferring tax. So they start moving that cash to a holding company and that way they're never paying that personal layer of tax. They now have a higher savings amount to invest in the commercial real estate because they've only paid the 11% tax. And you can do like a flow through dividend to the hold co. Yeah, completely tax free. And so then they're building up more of a savings. They have the down payment. They have the debt in the hold co. And again, to repay the debt, take cash from opco after the 11%, you move it tax free to the hold co to repay the debt. So you just have that much more cash to repay debt. I think that's a big point to talk about because so many people are like, ah, defer tax, whatever, but they don't realize by deferring it, you can then utilize that to earn interest like on an investment. Yeah. I mean, indefinite tax deferral is definitely tax savings. Yeah. Because if you're reinvesting, so if I have a hundred dollars earned in my company and I pay 11% tax, I have $89 to invest, whether that's real estate or in the public market. If my neighbor earns the same hundred dollars and pays tax and they have $60 to invest. Well, if you earn 5%, now my $89 is going to have a higher number than their 5% on their 60. Yeah. And then escalate that year after year and with bigger dollars. Just defer it as long as you can. One other question I had, and this was brought up from a client in Alberta, actually. So I'm putting you on the spot. But if you have a owner-occupied primary residence and you're renting out the basement suite and you sell, are there capital gains on a portion of the gains because the square footage in the basement suite has been rental income? 
Um, <laughs> the argument you might look at the size of the rental suite compared to the overall square footage, look at whether the tenants have access to the overall property, and you might be able to say that basement suite rental was just incidental and ancillary. Those are the keywords with CRA. And if it's incidental and ancillary to the overall purpose of the house, it's still the whole thing will be your principal residence. Right. Okay. So, so right there, that's why you have to contact an accountant. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you do run like if it's a 50-50, then it's not black and white because it is very broadly worded when you look at the CRA interpretations and case law on that. But do you feel many people know about that? I feel like I've like when that was brought to my attention, I was blown away. And I don't think I've spoken to one person that has ever thought that there would be a tax on that. I get asked that more often lately. I don't know if more people are aware. I got asked on that similar issue on a carriage house because it is by property. You know, in that case, you've got to carve out the value that's the carriage house. Separate. Well, it kind of makes sense, I guess, if people are writing off expenses to that associated rental or offsetting the rental income by the expenses. You're going to take a position, the whole thing's your principal residence where you've got the basement suite. One thing that you cannot do or you will lose your principal residence is take depreciation on your house. That's even the same thing with like a business where you've got maybe a part of your house set aside for the home office and maybe you have a you know big add-on to the house just for the office space. If you depreciate it, you've really carved out a part of your house. This is a business. You're depreciating the house. You've lost it. So. I'm not depreciating my house, am I? <laughs> There's so many scenarios that you're talking about. I'm like, is she talking yeah. directly at me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once Nicole's like, God, I had this terrible client once. I'll be like, okay, now I know she's talking about me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can talk about GST a little bit. So like it's when they change the use of the property. I'm so confused by this all the time, but if it's a. Well, okay. So one, I'll say I'm not a GST expert. I do get asked a lot of questions. When I was at KPMG, I was head an office side by side or GST expert. So I learned a lot and I definitely, when it gets a little more complex, I defer to a GST expert. A lot of people don't know though. And a lot of people it's closing time and there's a phone call of panic at the lawyer's office. Okay, now I know you're talking about me. This happened. No, no. This is literally the same scenario. But we spoke about this months previous and we're like, yeah, GST is not applicable because we're essentially buying a corporation, like a shareholder mm, purchase. Yes. But then the seller's lawyer said it was applicable and we disputed that it wasn't. Not to disclose too much on that, but I guess, yeah, it gets left until like, does it get to the lawyer's office? And then they're the ones that are deciding on. I feel like it does because usually somewhere in the agreement, someone's signing off about that. If GST were to apply, who's responsible. And then all yeah. of a sudden no one wants to sign that or they yeah. want to get advice. It's always in an MLS contract and like, yeah, I feel everyone puts it in there, but half the time you read it and you're like, why would GST ever be applicable in this? Yeah. I would just say, well, like if you're a real estate agent, tell them to tell, ask their account right away. If it's been used to earn commercial income, I would think that it's probably going to be subject to GST, not necessarily. Yeah. And that's where a lot of people too, like I had this one client, he was buying this property and it was principal residence and part farm and leased. And he kept asking if he was going to have to pay GST. I was like, well, it starts with the seller. Yeah. Yeah. Does the seller need to charge? And then the seller's real estate agent was like, no, it's based on the purchaser. I'm like, well, no, you first start with the seller. What like, if they use the property for? So big white is so easy. Yeah. Okay. It's been used in short-term rentals. 
Okay. Are they registered for GST personally? And it's been used in short-term rentals. Yes. Okay. They're likely charging GST. Now as a purchaser, what are you going to use the property for? If you're going to use it for personal pleasure, not a business, you cannot register for GST. So you will pay the GST because the seller is charging it. If you're going to buy the property and use it short-term rentals, then you can register for GST. And essentially what happens is that the vendor is supposed to collect GST, but they shift that burden onto the purchaser. So all the purchaser does is file a GST return stating that they've collected it on behalf of the seller and they've paid the GST on behalf of themselves. And so there's no GST payable, but there is a reporting requirement. So So if you're going from GST applicable, like a short-term rental to a primary residence, it would be GST applicable because you're changing the usage of it. If you're going from short-term to short-term, it's not. If you're going from primary residence to short-term, it's not because then you'll start collecting during that. So on the next transaction, it would be. Yeah, that last one, primary to short-term. And then you start collecting short-term rentals. And if you go over the 30,000, there's a requirement to register. Well, that's my, like with the 30,000, it's like you could make that on a long-term lease as well on a certain property. So if your rentals are over 30 days, it's considered long-term residential rent. And so there's an exemption for GST. And then same with like, say a multifamily building, it's residential. So because it's residential, GST would not be applicable. Long-term residential. So if you had an apartment building that was all short-term rentals, I think it's 30 days or less. Okay. And then commercial leases long-term because GST is applicable there. Commercial is just GSC. There's no exemption. Whew. Okay. I think that's all Matt can handle for today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know about opportunities to just monitor. Maybe there's still pockets in BC. There's no speculation tax. I don't know. Yeah. Well, okay. Here's another question briefly. Why should somebody work with an accountant? Like I do hear some people say sometimes like, oh, I don't want to start a corporation or accountants are too expensive. What's kind of your elevator pitch to like why people should? I mean... To me, it's obvious, but... Yeah, I mean, I think if you're anyone who's looking at any sort of planning that's outside the norm, you're doing a little bit more than going to work on a day-to-day basis. An accountant can work with you on discussing tax differences on buying rental properties or investments, how to report it. When you get into retirement, a common question I have is, should I start taking money out of my registered retirement income fund before I turn the age of 71 so that I'm not hit with so much income when I'm at that age? What should I invest in? Because if I invest in this, it looks like I'm going to lose on my old age security because my income produced on that investment is too high. And then if there's anything more complex, like again, I get into stuff like estate planning. There's maybe opportunities in that side of things of what type of assets you own. And making sure that things are set up good from an estate planning perspective. Also, the rules seem to be changing so much. Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I've been an accountant for, I guess, 21 years. And the rules that have occurred since the liberals have been in place, the changes, and they're all sneaky ones. Like the underused housing tax, it came on the budget, tax return to be filed, targeted at tax and non-residents. Legislation comes out last January and we're all, all these accounts we're reading and it's like everybody has to file, owns residential property practically. And at the time it was due April 30th and we're just scrambling. <laughs> there was no form issued. You have to get a number and then they kept extending the deadline, but it was just a sneaky one. Again, these house flipping rules, it's just like, oh yeah, okay. You buy a house, you sell 
within a year, CRA is going to get you. Then you won't get your principal residence exemption. But then you start going through the rules and it's like, oh, it's actually catching this weird situation. And, and this one where I was just doing something for estate planning purposes and now I've lost my principal residence exemption. You think the people that are coming up with these tax codes are just laughing in the background? <laughs> oh, yeah, this will be a fun yeah. one. <laughs> like just sick humor. They should hit the yeah. Yeah. Like they had like last federal budget is the minimum tax rules. And I was like, well, we already have a minimum tax. You've announced this like you're this great government and we're going to get these Canadians with this minimum tax. Well, you already have a calculation in place. So they just changed the calculation up the rates. But then you start diving in and immediately charities were impacted. Sierra seems to have backed off on that, but they were impacted. Anyone with large capital gains. So real estate again, if you got your second property that's not your principal residence and you have a large capital gain, there might be a higher tax rate than expected. Do you think they'll ever change the capital gains? Like I know they've spoken about it before. They essentially have with this minimum tax in the back doorway. So the public doesn't have the outcry. And that's why I said these all these tax changes have occurred, but they're pretty sneaky from a I call I guess a political point of view. The general population doesn't know about it. And do you think they like would ever revert back? Like obviously taxes come in like wartime tax and then it's never gone. Yeah. Like would they ever pull back on some of these? I guess to win an election, they propose it. Yeah, probably propose it. It's just, there's a lot of people that talk about complete reform of the tax. I mean, the tax act's just like so big now. Yeah, yeah you almost need to just start over, I guess. Hey? That's what it feels like is start over. Because some of these tax changes that come in over the last few years, the flipping rules last year. Well, we already actually have legislation in place that prevents somebody from flipping and calling it their principal residence. It was just more broadly worded. You'd have to prove... Yeah. The situation now it's just more black and white, but they didn't get rid of the other legislation. They just add on. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you were to buy one property in the Okanagan in the next 12 months, what would it be? <laughs> Maybe joking. No real estate personally, because of all the speculation. <laughs> you can't have short-term rentals and you can't do anything with it. And uh, the loan would be too high to recover anything on long-term rental, but I did go for a walk one day around Wilden, close to where I live, and I did see a really nice lot that hasn't been, I don't think it's been listed yet, but it's got a great view of not just like a little bit of Okanagan Lake, but it's also got the ponds and the trees. Yes. I was just like, that's a nice lot. But yeah, I don't know. It's just such a weird market. It's not one of those ones where it's like, oh, I'd like to invest here. I mean, the commercial side is a tough one. Looked at that a little bit on, you know, just where I'm renting now and just the, I guess they call it the cap rates in the commercial world. Just we're not there. I feel like what you're saying is I feel really bad for landlords. You guys have it super tough. And I agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What's the best thing you've ever spent money on? Oh, It's a bit silly, but it's for this exercise program I have. It's this app. It used to be called Beach Party. It's called Body Now. But (laughs) when I had kids, I could not have time to be a working mom. And I do work quite a bit to find time to go to the gym. Exercise has always been really important to me. And I had this one DVD, but I found it was part of this app that we were driving to Vancouver. And this ad came on the radio about the app and tried it out and... I don't know, eight years, nine, maybe 10 years later, I paid my 125 a year and it's like got a million programs on there. So cool. Matt's going to start trying it. Try other ones. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) It was like best money spent. There you go. Yeah. Got it in for it was hot. What is your favorite charity? Charity. 
I say in general, I started thinking about this. So I was like, well, I probably focus more on things, whether it's time or money, things yeah. that help give kids opportunities. So I coach soccer, but I'm also part of the board of the KYSA, which is nonprofit. And as a board, we're always just trying to find opportunities so that kids that maybe can't afford or maybe they can't afford the kit to try yeah. and get in, whether they're on the academy team or the house team. I used to volunteer at the YMCA when I was on maternity leave and just put some money there. Just again, they have programs to help kids that can't afford. So I just find them always there. And then, you know, we've got a son with autism and definitely involved in some of the Canucks autism, Special Olympics, because they, again, they seem to do a lot with those kids to give them opportunities to, in our case, just feels like keeping them active a bit. bit. So. So yeah, it's awesome. probably just where I, you know, and I'm part of KGH, their plan giving. So that's on the estate planning side. But I definitely think I tend to lean towards just giving kids opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask how you have time for it all, but you're using the workout app and it creates a lot of extra time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and people always say, how do you have time? Like my sister-in-law, I'm like, well, I actually have not gone to a hairdresser and maybe you can tell, but I get really irritated by sitting there for four hours when I could just at home, figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) So people spend their time elsewhere. So yeah, for sure. So how can our listeners help you? How do we connect with you if people want to find out more about you? Got a webpage, Watson Charter Professional Accountant Services. If you search, it's not the Vancouver one or the Prince George one, and there's no affiliation. Just wow. Common name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just, yeah, feel free to call. We've got a few staff that, you know, even if it's just questions, hopefully if I scared anyone about the trust reporting, <laughs> there's definitely well, a few of us, a few people and our staff that can help answer those questions. And yeah. yeah, yeah, you guys are awesome. Love working with you. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on and we'll be in touch by the end of, was it March 30th? We got to get it going on this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you're going to scare people, don't, release this on march 29th <laughs> yeah yeah we'll put it out on april 1st april 1st. thanks for listening to the Kelowna real estate podcast be sure to reach out and let us know how else we can add value to your Kelowna real estate journey please show some support by hitting the like share and subscribe button this is sponsored by matt glenn real estate and taylor adventure mortgages